0: Uber, Waymo, Starsky, and Embark hit the road with autonomous trucks. The West Coast spot market is at an inflection point. The Tennessee Glider Kids study scandal blows up, and we round out the week in blockchain. I'm JP.
1: And I'm Chad.
0: And we'll be discussing these topics and more on this episode of What the Truck. So, Chad, um, last week we were talking about your visit to the ATA's TMC conference, and there was a lot of talk about you know, autonomous technology. The president of the ATA, uh, Kevin Spear, was basically saying, oh, don't be afraid. Chris Spear. Chris Spear. It's okay. was <laughs> saying, basically, you know, don't be afraid. We're only going to see level one and two autonomous in you know, the next year. Yeah, right. platooning,
1: level one autonomous.
0: Basically, basic driver assist technology. But then this week, there was basically a raft of level four tests that came out, um, and you you wrote about it. So why don't you tell us what happened?
1: Yeah, it was a little little ironic that you come from the, the technology and maintenance uh, council, Meeting, um, and and then, <laughs> and then uh, only to, to be hit with like one story after another of of um, sort of outsider companies. I would say you know not insiders, but outsider companies.
0: So the ATA kind of representing the big incumbent large carriers might not have the best handle on the actual like emerging tech players
1: well it, yeah it, it, and that's sort of how i concluded the story thinking of um like you know maybe it is the new blood to the trucking industry that's exactly what it needs which is a shot in the arm um and so like yeah so what were the stories uh, Starsky tells us that they've you know launched a, a seven mile road um, unmanned seven mile drive of an unmanned class eight Um, it was a level four, which we've discussed the levels, right. Where there was a, there was a, a, um, a pilot, there was a driver in the truck, but I'm sorry, this
0: isn't Starsky, right?
1: No, this is, yeah. Starsky did the, the seven mile unmanned, um, truck in, in Florida. Um, but Uber, uh, you know, announced, you know, their, their project and, um, uh, you know, there were Waymo just, just, um, did, did uh, an unmanned thing in uh, Atlanta.
0: Okay. Well, um, tell us about the Uber test.
1: Um, well, they actually have been in stealth mode on Arizona's highways um, for months. Um, but, you know, they've, recent, they've created cargo transfer terminals within the state. Um, and they're just basically they announced that they're ready for the public to know. Um, and they what they're trying to do is figure out ways like their experiments are, where do we need the human touch? Do we, you know, and it's like, and we talk a lot about last mile. And of course they do need the human touch and the drivers in the last mile. Also, you kind of need it at the beginning. And as Starsky actually discovered similarly is, well, what do you do when you have to refuel and stuff too? So it seems like level four could realistically be happening, you know, um, in 2018, it's, it's happening, right? Yeah. Like, um, it's, it's news. It's exciting. Um, and I think one, one of the stories that, um, really fell below the radar is Embark. Um, you know, they, uh, a month ago, so not this week as the others have reported, um, But uh, Embark completed a test run from Los Angeles to Jacksonville, Florida, um, and they wow. hailed it as the first coast-to-coast journey by an automated truck um, using and they use how do they do it there's cameras and radar and lidar to track the, the vehicle's environment um, and they also had a form of artificial intelligence to process the data that was being captured by the sensors right um, which conflicts with what Starsky Robotics did say they said they, in their announcement they said that they were the uh, the, the very first. first. First, only autonomous truck with a product Um, in their seven miles, it seems like seven miles in Florida, not quite as much as going across the entire country.
0: Yeah. So did Embark have a driver in the cab?
1: Yes, they they did, um, but they did not. But you know, it was a similar thing. He he was just there to kind of man it, and when they ran into some trouble, which occasionally he had to sort of regroup with it for I don't know the you know. Okay, interesting. Hmm. So right, but what's cool about that is
0: about the you know, and and I'd like to see the exact route taken by the embarked truck, but it's interesting that they're willing to sort of jump out there, take that chance, go across different types of terrain, different, you know, days, uh, sorry, different times of day, potentially different weather. You know, it's it's very um, sort of more impressive than a controlled seven-mile sort of experiment in Florida alone.
1: Right, and and while and while I don't know exactly what they did, uh, Waymo did in Atlanta. I do know that the principles behind what they were doing were, are, are the same with the braking and the turning and the blind spots and right, right, interesting. Yeah. Um, well, tell me about. There's news I know with spot rates on the West Coast. What's happening there? Yeah. So.
0: We've been talking to brokers on the West Coast, uh, digital brokers, who have been really enjoying this kind of softening spot rate market over the past few months, right? So spot rates have been going down. Volume. This is seasonality, basically. Um, It also has to do with the Chinese New Year, which if you Mm -hmm. don't know what that is, it's a massive holiday in China where all of the... Workers on the industrialized coast leave their jobs for about two weeks and go back to their villages in the interior. And all manufacturing production shuts down, all the ports shut down. And basically, you know, 15 days later, when the container ship, after the last container ships have made it to West Coast ports, they really shut down. And it lasts for about two weeks and then it starts ramping back up again. so it's that, it's after Christmas, it's sort of a, a dead period in terms of produce, you know. We're, we're talking about January, February here. Um, and brokers make high margins when rates are going down because a shipper pays them first to, to find a truck to move their load. As time passes, rates go down. They end up being able to secure a truck for a lower price than they were paid the beginning they pocket the difference so they really make a lot of money on these downturns um and what we're starting to see in the data is that spar rates coming out of la have stabilized and that the tender to lead the tender lead time is also um starting to pick up a little bit and let me explain what the tinder lead time is this is yeah. basically a metric that our data scientists um Brad Hill, Daniel Pickett, have come up with. And it looks at how early are shippers posting their loads. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every load that's posted has a certain pickup time. And so what we're looking at is how, how far before that pickup time is the load first being posted. And that what that really tells us about is the shipper's attitude and feeling about market volatility. Right, right. So if it's a fair, so take, um, I guess, just as an example, we'll take North Dakota has a very long tender lead time of about seven and a half days. Average over the entire U.S. is anywhere from two to four days. And so the fact that North Dakota is so long tells us that it's a very stable market, that the loads are coming at a predictable, steady pace. And that shippers don't anticipate any wild price changes.
1: Now, if I, if I may ask something, you said that it's seasonal, mm-hmm. so a lot of this is, is is expected and anticipated, and and is a year over year trend. Um, and, Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it'll, but... So but this it doesn't have to do with, like, the lowering uh, retail, uh, the slow retail market um, right now?
0: Not as much. This is, okay. There's always a big trough right now. So you're, you're talking about um, some data reported by our chief economist, Ibrahim, mm-hmm. who said that the past three months have been sort of soft retail sales. Right. Um, it doesn't have as much to do with that. We'll okay. see if those sales pick up as we go towards summer. But... Um, What's really interesting Mm -hmm. about this particular trough is that the Chinese New Year fell late this year.
1: That's right.
0: And so when normal container traffic resumes on West Coast ports, it will be overlapping with the beginning of some California produce seasons. We're talking about things like um, artichokes, strawberries, lemons, asparagus. And so we actually think that SPAR rates have found their bottom, that they're about to start coming back up. We've know, Right now, um, we actually think that capacity and demand are at equilibrium, but it, the pendulum is about to start shifting the other way. Rates are about to start going up. Um, tender lead times, you know, depending on the kind of freight, Will either get longer or shorter so and that's
1: what our data scientists are, are telling us today. yeah
0: yeah and so so now that we're moving out of a softening um, rate environment to one that's firming back up where rates are moving upward to an upswing broker margins are going to start compressing again because it's, the reverse will be happening a shipper will pay them a certain amount to move a load in the meantime, the rates start going up, and by the time they, they find the truck, you know, they're, they're starting to pay more than they wanted to. Um, yeah. Right. And depending on the kind of freight, lead times can be shorter or faster. So for time-sensitive freight like, um, like reefer produce or something like that, that has to be moved quickly, the lead times will be very short because the shippers will try to move those loads before rates climb too much higher. But okay. for things that aren't time sensitive, um, we can see longer lead times because essentially uh, shippers will let a load sit on the market until they can find a truck to agree to a lower than market price. So okay. that's that's kind of what we're seeing right now. Um, that's some basically, data. Yeah, basically, you know, the brokers have been having a field day. That's what they've been telling us. But the party's over. And pricing power is about to return to carriers.
1: And we we have a message coming in right now as we speak. (laughs) Um, We're very up to date with things on our weekly roundup. Um, Well, that is some great data. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, What other stories in our roundup do we have this week? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I would say I know of the, the, you know, in very breaking news is the Tennessee Tech glider, yes. Fitzgerald glider kit story.
0: Right. So you've been writing about this a lot. Um, and it's a kind of a controversy that involves the, the major glider kit manufacturer, Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. which is in East Tennessee. It involves right. some sort of a scandal with some academic malpractice at Tennessee Tech University. It seems to be that way. We'll we'll call it alleged, and you know some things with um, Scott Pruitt's EPA is also involved. So, kind of break down how all of this got going, the initial regulations. Tell the whole story.
1: Well, I've I've been I've been you know pulled into the story a a bit because uh, uh, you know I was I was contacted by. Uh, a professor at Tennessee Tech University after our first coverage of this, and um, she had a lot to share um, with me. But it wasn't just, um, you know, the firsthand, you know, source of of what was happening. Actually, breaking news happened this Monday with like uh, letters, two letters were written to Scott Pruitt, the EPA uh, administrator, um, and, and one was written, by uh, two ex-US uh, EPA administrators from uh, the Clinton administration and the George uh, W. Bush administration. And, and they just basically, you know, in, in no uncertain terms, said that you know, this, this um, was a flawed scientific analysis, the study, that, um, that basically it was Fitzgerald Glider sponsored a study to happen at Tennessee Tech. Right. And the the study was performed with like a single field instrument and not actual EPA testing equipment. Uh, It was it was headed by a first year graduate student. Um, The rest of the faculty, including the College of Engineering, didn't even know that it was happening at the time. There's just there were a, a lot of problems with it. Um, so, so, so that letter came out on Monday. Yeah. As, so yeah, just to interrupt you for a yeah. second,
0: it sounds like things are like sort of coming to a head. You it know, seems like major it. players in the government are speaking out about this. The, the, the university itself has seen student protests, a faculty revolt, etc. To some
1: extent on the faculty revolt, you know, like, I mean, I guess if you were from the administration's perspective, you would say, well, not that many faculty are speaking out from from those that are speaking out. They're saying because we're the few brave ones that are willing to, you know, risk our jobs to speak out.
0: Um, Right. But let's go back to just the beginning of the whole scandal, even before Tennessee Tech got involved. And go back to the EPA regulations that really impacted the glider kit industry. Right.
1: Yeah. Well. Yeah. We should
0: this, give us the background.
1: Uh, you know, glider kits. Um, you know, they they served a purpose. Um, at, at a certain time in uh, in the industry's, um, you know, history where. Um, like, uh, I think it's been noted that there was a time where, um, you know, fewer than a thousand were produced each year um, and primarily for the salvaging of engines um, when, you know, relatively new trucks were uh, were in collisions. Um, but since 2015, the industry has completely um, changed. It seems that now there's like over 10,000 of these um
0: being produced every year.
1: Yeah. 10,000 every year being sold. And almost every single one was manufactured between 1998 and 2002. And the testing, the, the, and the other letter that was submitted, um, uh, to, to, um, Scott Pruitt, uh, (laughs) in the letter from these two U.S. senators, one of their quotes was that they said, the tested engines of those 1998 to 2002 vehicles um, were so dirty that black soot was belching from the glider trucks and clogged the filters of the EPA's testing equipment. They, 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 they rank them as like something like 450 times more polluting than um, modern engines today. Right, and so
0: the issue is whether—so the EPA, under the Clean Air Act, is authorized yes. to regulate the emission standards for new trucks, new cars, new vehicles produced in, in America. Obviously, the EPA can't go back— and, and say, oh, you have to retrofit every, you know, 1985, you know, Toyota or whatever with new emission standards. So they, re- they can regulate things going forward. And the question, right. and so glider kits, what they do is they repurpose the old engines and old transmissions, put them in a new body, and it's sort of yes it's a way to keep these, you know, engines that still function well on the road. It's, it allows them to offer owner-operators a cheap way to basically get a new-ish truck, right? Right. And so the Obama administration had kind of said that, no, like, we should regulate these glider kits as if they're new trucks. They're being sold on the market. The EPA has the authority to regulate this. We want glider kit trucks to be compliant with the best emission standards we have. Um, And what Scott Pruitt has gone and done is said that no— EPA actually doesn't have the authority to regulate. Yeah. These aren't new vehicles. They don't have the authority to do that. But then he went a step further. Um, Scott Pruitt, the director of the EPA, did and said that glider kits actually don't even pollute more. Than, <laughs> right. And that's what this study. Trucks. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, that's that is good. Good background on it. Um they were trying to use the study, are perhaps still trying to use the study somehow to to validate um, uh, <clears throat> glider kits, um, which is extremely dangerous um, to our health. With so many uh, being produced, um, in fact, uh, there was an, an internal agency um, research um, f- through the EPA that that said you know <clears throat> um, that. New um, even a new glider truck now can emit up to 450 times the particulate matter um, of pollution and up to 43 times the nitrous oxide pollution um, of model year 2014 15 trucks. Um, so it's you know they've they've found that it leads to increases of prematurely killing people um, with lung cancer, chronic lung disease, heart disease, and severe asthma attacks.
0: And so the issue is that basically Fitzgerald, the biggest manufacturer of collider kits, paid Tennessee Tech to do a study showing that they weren't polluting more than new trucks. Then they sent that to the EPA um, to try to get yes, them to t- try to further
1: validate and
0: try to get them exempted. Um, and and then that's kind of when, you know, the shit hit the fan and all of the scrutiny came on the study. People realized it was bogus. People started looking at the president and this deal that he did. Right. It's jail. It started looking at the building that they built on campus with their name on it. From all of this money that yes, was donated. Yeah, yes, um, all of the above. The New York Times called them out for their, you know, campaign contributions to to um,
1: to Diane Black.
0: Right. The, who the they're... Right, the Tennessee representative, US representative who is, you know, kind of ushering this along. It's kind of it's kind of crazy. Definitely check out um, Chad's articles on Frey Waves about the glider kit study, um, for the details because it's a little convoluted.
1: Uh, There is a lot to to the story. Um, And I tell you what, that letter um, written by those two U.S. uh, senators, uh, Tom Udall and uh, Tom Carper, uh, is it's comprehensive and it addresses it point by point. It is scathing and and. It, it detail. It, it addresses everything, including the point that you you said Scott Pruitt was arguing that the EPA might not have authority to mm. oh, to, to, to to give this. Allu- they said that is based on like a sixty year old precedent that, that that doesn't have anything to do with with even trucks. Oh um, wow! So that's, that's, so it's th- really... so it's on weak legal grounding right. uh, as well as the flawed study.
0: So it's kind of like a kitchen sink letter, just. Yeah, and they
1: asked for like twelve things from Scott Pruitt and the EPA. So I mean, it was like not, not and, only and Senator
0: Udall is a Udall is a Republican, right?
1: No, I don't think so. I think they're they're both Democratic senators. Interesting. Uh, Udall, I think, is from New Mexico. I'd have to check. Yeah, I know okay. that. I know that
0: his brother is also. There's okay. two Udalls in the Senate. Okay. I think one's from um, Utah or something. The,
1: to me, like, health and the environment is a bipartisan issue. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's,
0: it, we'll, we'll see. It's interesting. I wonder what Scott Pruitt will actually do about this.
1: As well as Tennessee Tech. Um, so, uh, what else in the news? There's been a lot uh, going on.
0: So one, well, one thing we wanted to talk about was everything blockchain. Um, we've had... Some correspondence. Our executive editor, John Kingston, attended some blockchain conferences in DC this week. Um, obviously, we're involved with the Blockchain and Transport Alliance. And I don't know, you, you have a kind of a roundup of some of the week's news in blockchain.
1: Well, I mean, it, um, you know, logistics giant DHL. Uh, announced um, this this week that um, they had partnered with Accenture, and now Accenture um, is like the the biggest I would say the biggest. They're a very large blockchain based um, you know creator. They they create um, um, mostly like private blockchain applications oh, for
0: enterprises.
1: Yes, um, so so they're partnering. Um, uh, with something. and, and also um, another like consortium of um, a, a supply chain consortium involving um, AB inbev, um, Accenture uh, APL, and um, Coin and Nagel um, <clears throat> as well as some European customs organizations they came together and um, and they're working on um, how to apply blockchain um, to you know increase efficiency across um, their their supply chain shipping
0: across borders specifically it sounds yeah like, it's
1: right? it's it's fascinating stuff to listen to all of the different um, players in the industry about blockchain because there, there's the fear that that regulations getting starting to get heavy-handed and and suppress the innovation that's happening. Um, there is you know there's obvi- there's there's these uh, the obvious criticisms about well you know are you guys ever going to be able to scale this technology as well as the fact of you know people saying well you know one you know uh, one blockchain company takes up the power of Denmark you know and, right, and right. such. You know, sort of hysteria um, that's related to the industry. Um, my, from t- absorbing the arguments and thinking about also, you know, there's actually also the debate of like, should all blockchain be public or should all blockchain divide up into many private blockchains, which is kind of fascinating to think about. But, and it's absorbing all of this, it's like, I think that what I'm hearing is we need to have public blockchains to, like, sort of, like, cooperatively work with the private adaptations of it. Interesting. Um, also, that, uh, you know, the power is going to be, you know, it, it does take up a lot of power. It is kind of a long-term issue that the industry needs to 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 um, work on, but... They're actually trying to work with companies that um, aren't on the grid and have a lot of like overload of of capacity that isn't being used, and uh, and they're using you know they're they're basically absorbing the power that is otherwise not being used and actually helping these these communities.
0: Yeah, there are actually some. I read an article in the New York times about this weird mill old mill town mm-hmm. in like upstate New York where they had built the, you know, these things to generate power from, from the river um, to power these factories like a hundred years ago, but now those factories don't exist anymore. And so these Bitcoin yeah. mining people moved in to generate power. Exactly, um, And so they're kind of, you know i'm not going to they're not really creating jobs it's just a bunch of you know graphics processors like you know sitting in a in a giant warehouse but at least they're buying <laughs> electricity from the city
1: right yeah and, and, and i don't know how much is happening in new york or the us where electricity is more expensive right this but, is so this is yeah, upstate
0: I, that had a particularly cheap but yeah there's there's places in canada right places All in oregon over. Yeah, um even what Iceland supposedly Iceland, geothermal. Like, I, um
1: one of the main um like I guess players in this is a guy named Frank Holmes and he's got a a business called Hive and they're working with Genesis Mining, which is Genesis Mining is the largest cloud-based company uh to outsource your mining with. Um and basically he says that their approach is they go with it's called stranded electricity. And it's, it, they've got it in Eastern Europe, all over Canada. He specifically mentioned, you know, hopefully it'll transform certain areas in Canada, northern northern um, Quebec, Manitoba, British Columbia, and some places even in Ontario. Wow. Um, yeah. So Ontario is
0: like the actual place in Canada where people live.
1: <laughs> <clears throat> they live all over. It's not the 51st state. Let's not be... Uh, let's not be, um, too condescending to our, one of the interesting things, one of the debates, sister country, (laughs) it's America's hat. (laughs) So no,
0: one of the things that I've noticed like in online blockchain forums and especially Bitcoin, like the, like the Bitcoin subreddit is that crypto purists scoff at the idea of blockchain without cryptocurrencies. Yet on the other hand, businesses, especially in finance, so yeah. big banks, um, investment banks, hedge funds, yeah, they're et cetera, starting to come into play. And transportation and logistics companies are saying, "No, we love blockchain, yes, but we don't necessarily, we aren't interested in you know these volatile, floated cryptocurrencies." Yeah, the crypt. So there's there's mm-hmm. two, really two sides of this debate, and yeah. you know. Goldman Sachs super interested in, in blockchain you know might be secretly investing in Bitcoin but publicly says that it's nothing. The, the crypto people, the huge the huge blockchain or the huge Bitcoin bulls are saying you know Bitcoin will you know, Abolish governments and banks and end war and 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 democratize.
1: And that's the the easy to dismiss um, part of blockchain, um, which actually it's so easy to dismiss that I began, as I thought of blockchain uh, over the past several months, to just say, well, Bitcoin's silly and it has nothing to do with blockchain. And can we please separate the two? But... The reason that they continue to persist and exist and that banks are dealing with them now, actually, banks are like practicing using cryptocurrencies to some extent, even within their own, just like prep, is, is this is how you like learn and innovate, mm. like, you know, blockchain. Right. So you it,
0: have to have incentives to build out the nodes to it, actually get things done.
1: Nodes, that's right, yes. Um, and, <clears throat> um, uh, and i was I was trying to think the, the the cryptocurrencies is very interesting because whether or not Bitcoin actually does die and doesn 't continue to exist there 's been an interesting argument made as in my research that one way or another digital currencies currencies that aren 't associated with any product they 're just this you know a currency online that people attribute value to. They're going to continue to exist. They will be here 100 years from now. It might not be Bitcoin. It might not be, I forget, a bunch of the other different kinds. You might their... not
0: get paid in Bitcoin. <laughs> Someone will be using it right. for something. They're right. not a
1: threat. They're not taking over. Of course not. Um, but they, they're going to be around one way or another. And that's why I think there is this kind of like, look, you know, uh, regulators in the U.S., chill out. Allow for some innovation.
0: I've heard heard a couple. I've heard a little bit of pushback against the idea that all regulation is bad. It's kind of interesting. No, no, no. no. I think they expect it. There's like the libertarian, like anarchist, like teenager who's like, "Oh no, the government's bad. I want to pirate my music. I want to like pay for like (laughs) you know whatever. Like I want to like you know buy stuff on the internet without my mom knowing." But then there's people who are actually like, "No." If Bitcoin is going to be a valuable asset class, we actually need the SEC to regulate it. We need someone to step in to clean up the fraudulent ICOs to, you know, give some kind of structure so that mass consumers can put their money into it. Just like, just you know, just like with your, your 401k or your IRA, you know, ultimately, if it's going to become like a big store of value, like people wanted yep. to, um, you know, the Joe Schmo on the street has to be able to confidently put his money into it.
1: And well, and it's funny that, I mean, that you say that and I'm glad you, you brought it up. Um, because, um, at a panel in Canada, it's the fifth annual CanTech investment conference. Um, these, these, um, these, I guess, CEOs of, um, some, uh, Cryptocurrency blockchain companies were asked about if they were concerned about regulation that's inevitably coming, and um, uh, Anthony uh, DiLorio of um, Jack's Wallet, he said, "No, I think it's about education. He's not concerned about it. He thinks it's about education. He says the key is trying to educate people about the technology, about what's going on." for sectors, for jobs, Um, I think it's, he says, I think it's one of the things that's been really missing is ways to break it down to them um, and to teach them about it. And he says, I think the countries that do this and help the technology build itself are going to be the real winners. And, um, and and a millennial, um, one of the younger players and the generation that's really starting to like push this stuff and will ultimately make make this the transition happen. Kevin Rook of of CoinSquare right. um, says that really he sees it as as a sign of market maturity when you're regulated, um, and he says you you do have to work with regulators and make sure um, we're on the same page moving forward. Um, but there's you know really nothing to worry about and overall it's a good thing to your point and it seems like some uh, i mean if we take if we for a moment
0: to wrap this discussion up adopt the you know the perspective of the millennial crypto enthusiast the entities that are most opposed to it basically china right who's like banning cryptocurrency trading and you know heavily censoring their internet yeah and that just announced that they were banning crypto ads, um, which actually resulted in a loss of like sixty billion yeah, in market cap I heard that today. for cryptocurrencies in the past twenty-four hours. If you look at you know Google and China to <laughs> the millennial you know privacy loving crypto enthusiasts are like the bad guys, and so maybe the people who are yeah trying what to are th- their
1: motivations obviously right. right. So maybe
0: right. the countries that try to create a legal framework for it. There's been a lot of buzz, by the way, about Wyoming's recent laws sort of, you know, prom- you know creating a framework for blo- uh, blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Cool. I hadn't um, heard about that. You know, I can kind of see, you know, th- there's a middle way, right? Yeah. The, the, a sweet spot that might be able to um, I think so. smooth um, investment and uh, bring, bring some clarity for the average consumer. Anyway, um, I think I guess that
1: wraps it up for the, Boom. the week, right? That's it. Well said on, on blockchain. All right. And that'll do it for the big stories this week. As always, we go into more detail about each of the topics we've talked about today on our website, FreightWaves.com. We will continue to publish this podcast weekly, so be sure to subscribe to What the Truck on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Also, make sure to leave us a review to let us know what you think of our new podcast.
0: And if you're into learning about technology that's shaping up the industry, you definitely want to be at Transparency 18 in Atlanta this May. Visit Transparency18.com to learn more about the event.
1: That'll do it for today. Thanks for tuning in. And we will see you next week on What What the the truck. Truck.